If you have your Bibles, please open them to Acts chapter 6. One particularly notorious bad loss, Green Bay Packers head coach Vitz Lombardi, the next day in practice, got the whole team around, held out a football and said, men, this is a football. I think there are times in church life where there's, there's a need to do something similar, and that is to remind the church of basics, to remind the church of the essence of what ministry looks like, what church involvement looks like. And today, the occasion where we ordain a young man to pastoral work, where we commission uh, a sweet, precious couple of this church family, Pastor Mike and Liz, to go to Uganda and serve the Lord there, it's good for us to have one of those, this is a football type of talks. So Acts chapter 6 reminds us of the essence, maybe I should say the necessary ways in which an elder or a pastor serves, labors, ministers to the body of Christ. When you look in this text, there is a conflict happening or arising within the church over the care for widows. The response of the apostles, and you'll see later in the book of Acts, you read through it, that they're associated with elders. In other words, they're functioning early on in the church as pastors. And then this slowly, it seems like they are displaced by pastors. And so functionally, I think in this text, what you see is um, really the formation of deacons and the establishment of the role of elders. And so it's a, an incredibly helpful text for us in understanding what does a role of a pastor look like? What is the role of a deacon? Why are deacons uh, established within the church? So as we read this, look with me in verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, disciple there is just simply another word we would use for Christian, and it speaks to who they are. They're followers of Jesus Christ. It's hard to claim with integrity that you are a Christian if you do not follow the Lord. So if you're living in disobedience, your call, your claim of Christianity should be doubted. Right? Like if you're, if you're not following after Christ, then you're not a follower. If you're not a follower, you're not a Christian by definition. So he's saying nothing more than those who are faithfully following after Christ are increasing in number. Probably at this point, we're looking at a church that's pushing over 5,000. So don't say that. God doesn't like megachurches. The first one is the first church. But that creates problems. They're increasing in number. It complains by the Hellenistic um, Jew, Jews. So that is Jewish people who are Jewish, but yet speak and interact with the Greek culture with an affinity that marks them out from those who are Hebrew Jews. And there's this conflict because widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute or good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, 
and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I got to tell you, in a probably unhealthy way, I find a little bit of satisfaction knowing that the early church managed by the apostles themselves had problems. <laughs> like, right? like they, they too had the same challenges that we face in terms of category. There's administrative struggles, there's hurt feelings, there's accusations of, of um, dissatisfaction with the pastors, with the leaders of the church, the apostles themselves. So here's the nature of the issue. On a regular basis, Jewish culture would care for widows and it seems as though the early church took this on, and it's particularly Hebrew in orientation. And so as the early church begins to um, take care of those within their church who are the poor and, the, and those who are hurting and unable to rescue themselves, right? We're not talking about able-bodied men who don't have a job. We're talking about widows who can't work. We're talking about people who are poor without ability to turn to their own resources or family, and those who speak Greek and come with a little bit different culture are not able to be, or are not being cared for. So look at the solution then, or I should say better. Look at a framing of a conflict here. Look at verse 2. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So the apostles acknowledge, yes, there's a problem that needs to be addressed, and we are not the people to fix it. Right, for, us to, for us to turn and begin serving these widows and taking care of their physical needs is actually not right. In other words, that's not fitting or an appropriate use of our time. I just want you to like, think about that for a moment. Imagine there's an internal conflict within a local church in our community and sweet saints and elderly people in that church are being uncared for and the pastors in all seriousness say, yeah, we can't spare the time. I think most people would be offended. Most people would be very concerned that those pastors aren't actually very godly. But it's not that they didn't just merely have the time. They realized there's a conflict. For them to administrate the, the care and the collection of finances, that's what it means to wait on tables. It's not like serving tables at a restaurant. The point is like the money changers' tables, that this is where exchange was happening. So he, he is suggesting, and that is Luke by writing this, that the apostles see there's an administrative need in the church to collect finances and to distribute to the poor, to care for those in the church. And the apostles say, we can't do it. It's not right. Because if we take on that burden of administration and distribution, we will abandon the preaching. Look in verse 2. Right? The preaching of God's word. So what do they do? Verse 3, they tell the church, pick seven men. Um, I think these are proto-deacons, and this is significant for my theology, because if, in fact, they're, they're deacons, he's using the word for a, a male. Not here, he's not saying pick seven people. So there are churches who have deaconesses, and I, I disagree with them. I think they're, they can be sweet brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't think they're, like, in heresy or somehow trying to make women leaders in church, at least the good churches that do this. But I think a text like this informs us that they should be male. And so they, they pick out seven men to deacon the tables. That's the word there. It's, it's to serve, to minister, to deacon the tables. What's interesting, and just to point this out, if you come down to verse 4, the ministry of that word is that same word, deacon. So it's almost as though you have deacons to administrate the care and the protection of widows. 
And on the flip side, you have the pastors or the elders who are deaconing God's word. They are servants serving the church by giving them God's word. It says the conflict here means we can't do both well. Therefore, what we're going to do is pick these seven men. They can do it. We are going to devote ourselves to two things. What two things are, are these pastors going to devote themselves to? Prayer and the ministry of God's word. That's it. Keep our hands out of the administration of finances, out of the care for the widow's food or the shelter that they might need. We are not going to get lost in the administrative bureaucracy of managing 5,000 believers because we must devote ourselves to these tasks. We must be men who come before God in prayer, and we must be men who bring people before God by giving them the, God, the word of God. I want you to look at the church's response. Verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. I do think our modern church struggles a little bit with this. I think oftentimes we want the pastor's attention. If you get visited by a deacon, it's kind of like, really? We like, like, we didn't get like the A team, we got like the D team. Like, like you know, there's like pastors, and, and then there's these pastoral assistants, and we got deacons? But this pleased the people because this was a way to care, to help, and to serve the church well. In fact, if you go back to chapter 4, you'll see that, uh, well, even chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira are bringing their money to the apostles. Chapter 4, verse 35, they're bringing the money to the apostles who are then distributing it. And that's where I think you see them stepping back and saying, hey, this is administratively distracting us from what's primary. So let me just challenge you on prayer. And before I do, I'm going to try to like tie a little bit of a a more broad application in here. For those of you who lead people, I'm looking at you, dads. You lead your homes. For those of you who have management and influence over others, whether it's small group or, or any other spiritual leadership role that God has given you, I want you to consider that this template for which pastors are setting the tone for the church is not merely only that pastors do this, but that this be reduplicated, at least in some small sense, in our homes and among spiritual leaders within the church. That they be men of prayer and men who are in God's word. So let's focus that on the first thought. There's a necessity to serve the church through prayer. So you look at the necessity or, or the idea that the, bio, that the scriptures make it clear that we must necessarily be men of prayer if we're to be men leading God's church. He says in uh, chapter 6 of Ephesians, walks through, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Spiritual powers, right? He's basically saying there's, there's unseen forces in this world that are opposed to the work of God. Therefore, put on the armor of God. Resist Satan's pressure and temptation. And then in verse 18, he says that we're to always be praying in the Spirit. It's amazing to me how the armor of God leads, it leads through this like gospel orientation of we have faith, we have the sword of the spirit, we have the helmet of salvation, and the armor metaphor stops. And then he says, always praying. It's a continuation. That is, we don't just put on the armor, that that armor is equipped and saturated with praying always 
in the Holy Spirit with all prayers and supplications for all the saints. Colossians 4.2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Romans 12.12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. It is notable that in the book of Daniel, Daniel's record is so unblemished that when they go to bring charges against him to, to bring him down, they say there's nothing bad he's done. The only thing against him is the laws of his God. And so they manufacture a law that will trip him up because the obedience to God is so clearly a commitment that he will not bend on. And certainly then, Daniel is caught red-handed, a criminal, praying three times a day. It's compelling when you look at Scripture and you see again and again the course of prayer. Let me give you three examples from Scripture where you see spiritual leaders praying and the significance of them. You might recall when Moses came down from the mountain, he had spent 40 days up there on the mountain with God as God scribes out the Ten Commandments. On his return back, he sees Israel caught up in sin. You might have forgotten that God says, Moses, I'm going to paraphrase here, stand back, I'm going to wipe the slate clean and restart with you. Moses then pleads with God and prays and begs for mercy. And because of that, God hears his voice and does not bring judgment on the people that Moses is leading. He intercedes. Deuteronomy 9 tells us that was 40 days of intercession. I might have a hard time praying for 40 minutes. 40 days of intercession where he stood between God and the people of Israel and said, don't ruin the nation. After he deals with Israel, he goes back up into the mountain. He says, stay here. I will go and make atonement for you. You might want to move forward to another example. Samuel, when he's dealing with Israel, Israel says, we want a king like the other nations. And Samuel personally is very hurt by that. And God says, don't be hurt, Samuel. They've rejected me, not you. But Samuel feels it. He challenges Israel and he says, you've done wrong by rejecting God as your king. And Israel, in, in a moment of kind of awkward imbalance between wanting a king and wanting to be loyal to God, is caught in this moment and, and kind of toys with the idea of repentance. And Israel says, no, God will do this. And they plead with Samuel for mercy. And he says this. He says, moreover, as for me. He says, God will be faithful to you despite you wanting a king. And he says, moreover, as for me. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. That's a compelling statement about what it means to spiritually lead. He says, I will not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. So here's a spiritual leader. He sees the nation defecting away from loyalty to God. He calls them to repentance. And he says, even in your lack of repentance, I will not sin against God by failing to continue praying for you. And so Samuel continues. 
at least presumably if he keeps his word, he challenges them only fear the Lord. Let me leave you with a final and to me the most compelling example of a leader praying for those who he's leading. In Luke chapter 22, Peter is speaking boldly that he will not defect. And Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Maybe a way for us to phrase that sifting like wheat a little bit better in our English language would be something like this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might tear you to pieces. But I have prayed for you. That your faith might not fail. Jesus is going to be murdered. And he's worried about his disciples. Man, if I was going to be murdered tonight, I don't think I'd be praying for you all. <laughs> I'd be praying for me. I'd be praying for my wife. It is clear that God answered that prayer. Listen how Jesus ends that. He goes, and when you've turned back, Satan didn't get him. Satan didn't wreck Peter. Oh, Satan tempted him. Peter stumbled, but Peter is restored. Peter did not walk away from the faith. He did not give up on Jesus. He came back. We have Moses, and he pleads, and God is merciful. We have Jesus pleading for Peter, and God protects him from Satan, tearing him to pieces. Spiritual leaders are men who pray. They pray for their people. It's an act of love and it's an act of devotion. It's an act of sacred duty. We cannot sin against God by failing to pray for our church. Shepherds pray for the flock. When it comes to spending time in prayer, let me just use church history as an example. I mean, we know the example of Daniel three times a day. We don't know how long those times were. We know Jesus in the garden. Whether or not he prayed for three hours or one hour is a little bit unclear, but at least for hours it seems as though he prayed in the garden. Luther said that he would spend two hours in prayer. He felt like he gave the devil opportunity, and if his day was busy, it would be three. These were men of prayer. Robert McShane said he would give the Lord his best hours, and so after tea time, he would pray, but he had already spent two hours by then in prayer from six to eight every morning. The Methodist strategy of prayer was to raise, wake up at 4 a.m. and pray for the first hour, and then throughout the day to be ministering and then at 5 p.m. stop once again to pray for another full hour so that there would be two hours of prayer for every Methodist preacher. There's significant time as we look throughout history men who are men of God prayed faithfully. And while the disciples might have failed in the garden because their spirit was willing their flesh might have been weak Pastors have to be people who do the hard work of prayer. May God grant the church pastors, servants, dads, missionary, young men and women of sweetness who walk with God in prayer. Think about the divine privilege it is to pray. As you walk in prayer, Hebrews 4 says, we enter into the place of God, we draw near to him and come before his throne of grace. If you just take a moment and consider what throne of grace implies on two levels. First, it's God's throne. 
We are speaking in the presence of the king of the universe, the one who created all things and holds it together by his power. We are speaking to him. So close is it to his presence that no sin can enter. That's why we need the blood of Christ in Hebrews 4, so that we can enter into that presence. This is not a presence where any unbeliever is welcome, ever. Only those covered by the blood of Christ are welcome. It is a place in which Scripture is clear if you are harboring sin in your heart, if you are walking down a path of sin, if you are living in rebellion to God, you cannot enter. This is why it is the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man that is very powerful in its working. This is why it calls on husbands. Be careful to live with your wives in understanding lest your prayers be hindered. This is a holy sacred place, but it is a throne room where the God of all glory reigns and dispenses grace. It's the throne of grace. And on behalf of God's people, every pastor must make it a place where his footsteps have worn a path to that throne. E.M. Bound says this, No man can do great and enduring work for God who is not a man of prayer. And no man can be a man of prayer who does not give much time to praying. Men, if we are to lead well, if we are to have any hope that this is an enduring work on which we embark, if we are to have any hope that the Lord plants deep roots that bring forth faithful, godly pastors in Uganda, we must be men of prayer. Not merely do the disciples devote themselves to prayer, but to the ministry of the word of God. In many ways, this is a topic that's so well worn at our church, it needs less focus. But at the least, we should recognize that the church was a place filled with God's word. If you were to read Acts 4, uh, 5.42, it says this, Every day in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I think we have a picture of preaching as something like what happens this morning. You know, everyone sits down, they're all quiet, and they all listen. I think it's a little bit of an infectious disease that is causing people to seek the light of glory rather than cause the light to shine on Christ. These men were going house to house. They were ministering to small groups, to individuals, to larger gatherings at the temple, and they were preaching to them that Jesus is the Christ. I think sometimes we focus so much on pulpit um, presence and presentation that we can often say a man is not gifted to teach if he is not gifted in this moment to do this thing that I'm doing now. I do not think that's the picture of the New Testament preacher. It is a man who is gifted and skilled in the word of God. It is one who's committed to not being ashamed because of the power of God to salvation. It is one who's confident that the word of God, which is implanted in those who believe, is able to give life to the dead. That causes him to preach. So just in words of challenge, men of God, men who are preparing to be pastors, men who want to be church planters and missionaries, must increasingly know the scripture. A surgeon who opens up the human body to bring back health better know human anatomy. An excellent cook knows her kitchen like the back of her hand. A botanist with any skill knows a flower, a stamen, and a petal, and is able to distinguish between the stem and the petal fairly easily. 
A craftsman knows his tools. He knows the texture and the fiber of wood that he's going to use. He knows how it bonds together, when it breaks and when it bends. How much more serious and how much more committed should the shepherd be to knowing God's word? A craftsman who knows the text, who lives the text, who understands how to bring it to bear in moments when he needs to give hope, when he needs to give help, when he needs to give rebuke, when he needs to give doctrine. How much more essential is it that he shames every surgeon, every cook, and every craftsman with expertise in his craft? Here's the life-giving word of God. We dare not neglect it to play video games or get lost in hobbies or athletics or just to fritter away our time talking in coffee shops about something not life-giving. Live out the scripture. First Timothy says, keep close watch on yourself and your doctrine. One of the ways I look back on my personal history and cringe, one of the many ways I look back and cringe I'm always very grateful for anyone who's been in our church for any number of years. Every time I hear a sermon of mine I preached a long time ago, I'm crawling under my desk in shame. And probably I would do that. I just, I just have stopped listening. That's my uh, solution. <laughs> but one of the things that, that gives me shame when I look back is the harshness, the impatience, the lack of mercy in sermons and counsel in my early years. Two weaknesses probably are present. Pride and inexperience. So perhaps one of the sweetest gifts God has given me is struggles. Marriage is hard. Kids are hard. Finances are hard. And please don't hear me to be complaining. I'm saying life at some point will put pressure on those things because of the grace of God to teach us to be humble. It is easy to look down on sinners struggling in sin. It is easy to look down on the rebel. It is easy to condemn them when you have a high view of yourself and you think Christ-likeness is easy. Confidence is the feeling you have when you don't know what you're talking about. Confidence is the feeling you have before you actually work at it. Try to be like Christ. And the more you try and the more clearly you see him and the more ardently you love him and the more faithfully you pursue him, the farther away Christ-likeness feels. And so when you see your fellow saints struggling, when you see them weak, when you see them sorrowful, when you see them discouraged, you say, me too, brother. I've been there, sister. Let's follow Christ together. In the ironic words of the Old Testament, is there no bomb in Gilead? The pastors of all people should be giving the healing mercy of God. So pursue Christ-likeness because it will humble you. C.J. Mahaney's book on humility, he mentions that you should play golf because it will teach you humility. Golf is child's play compared to Christ-likeness. child's play compared I don't care how bad you are at golf you're a pro at golf compared to Christ likeness be like Christ pursue Christ likeness in a marriage 
and you will find how selfish you are. Pursue Christ-likeness as you interact with obnoxious neighbors, and you will realize how far from Christ you are. Pursue Christ-likeness with coworkers who are punks, bosses who are obnoxious. In places that are political, try to be Christ-like, and you'll, fe- you'll see how far you fall short. Finally, I would just say what the apostles did here, point people to the Christ of Scriptures. There is no end to the needs of any church. This church will suck you dry because its spiritual needs are vast and broad. People of Uganda desperately need the Bissells, and they need so much more. You can give them all that you have, and they will drain you dry. You will be a husk. You will lose your joy. You will lose your spiritual power because they actually don't need you like they need Christ. The reason they need you is because you are a vessel through which Christ ministers to them. Give them Christ. Preach Christ to them. He is the all-satisfying one. You are not. We need dads who give their children the bread of life, not just simply bottles. They need the word of Christ, the life-giving word. They need to know that if they are struggling, there's mercy at the throne of grace. If they are proud, they need to know that they need mercy at the throne of grace. And if they cannot get to the throne, they need to know the Savior who opens the doors to the throne of grace. Give them Christ. If they have not Christ, they are proud. And they are hopeless. And they are helpless. And they will look to you to be their savior. And pride will say, here I am. Humility is to give them Christ. Preach Christ. Counsel them with Christ. Call them to follow Christ. So when the apostles say, if we were to care for the administration and the help for widows, we would not be able to spend time in prayer and ministering the word It was the most loving navigation of a hard point in the church. For if they had abandoned the ministry of the word of Christ, they would have starved the people spiritually. They would have left them spiritually bankrupt with bellies full. To leave them unprayed for would have left them unshielded from the temptations of sin And Satan would have left them vulnerable to the infection of worldliness and would have left them at at the mercy of the wolves of spiritual false teachers. They dare not abandon those tasks to help the widow get a new shawl, to be warm as she falls into sin. Pastors must be laser-focused on their duty I don't know if I have the guts to say what Charles Spurgeon said, but one night while studying for a sermon, he was, well, a man came to his door. The maid met the man at the door and said, how can I help you, sir? And he said, I need to speak to Mr. Spurgeon. He's not to be interrupted. He's preparing a sermon, the maid says. The man says, well, listen, this is, if he knew who this was, he would certainly want to receive me. And after pressing the maid for quite some time, the maid finally relents and says, I'll, I'll go ask Mr. Spurgeon if he will see you. 
And he returns, she returns back a little bit later and says, no, no, he's, he's, he's preparing a sermon. He's not going to take you. He says, please tell him I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm a fellow servant of his. I need to see Mr. Spurgeon. And the maid returned a few minutes later and told the man, Mr. Spurgeon says that he is with your master. He has no time for the servants. I think it's a similar point here. Maybe said a little more bluntly. But for a pastor to not be a man of God's word, to not be ready to give the life-giving truth of God's word, to feed the flock of God, and instead spend time in administrative functions, chatting with people, and killing daylight hours when he needs to be laboring in prayer and in the scriptures is for him to abandon his duty. He needs to be with the master so that he can take his master's word to the people so they can be fed. It's a sacred task. It's a noble task. And as we appoint these people to ministry, I think it's a task for which we should be also joining in prayer as a church family that they live up to the task, that they shepherd well, that as we see the Bacelles go to Uganda, it will take a special insight into God's word to transfer to other cultures the application of the life-giving scriptures. As we see Paul appointed and ordained to the ministry of the word of God, that God would give him strength to juggle the good responsibilities of home and vocation along with the shepherding duties here, is another thing for which this church should pray for. Discipline and care that those duties do not get dropped. You're balancing multiple precious things, and you dare not do damage to your family or the church. So we should be praying fervently that Paul shepherds the church well. I'm going to pray, and the music team is going to come in just a moment. When they come... What I would like to do is then um, have Paul come forward, and then Mike and I are going to lay hands on Paul and pray for Paul to ordain him. And then after that, we'll have Mike and Liz, since we're sending both of them to the mission field. I mean, Paul is coming as a pastor, and while we love Vercelli, she's not a co-pastor. She is his wife, and so she's going to support him and cheer him on and be a fantastic helper. I think she is a noble example of a godly woman. But Liz, we're actually sending so she's not only a helper to her husband, she is going to be on the front lines of ministry. And so we're going to um, pray and commission both Mike and Liz to go. So I'm going to have the deacons come for Mike and Liz to join Paul and I in laying hands on Mike and Liz as we commission them to the mission field. So let me, let me conclude the service by praying that the Lord would, would strengthen the shepherds of this church, both present and future would strengthen some of you men who said you want to get to ministry, you better start that prayer habit now. It's amazing how much hard work prayer is. Some of you try to pray for 15 minutes, you're like, 15 minutes is hard. Like you read about Robert Merrick McShane, and, and at some estimates it was six to eight hours a day. That is hard work to pray for that. Let's be men who are cultivating prayer now. So let's join together and pray for one another that the Lord strengthen our church to do these things. Father in heaven, we are so privileged to be able to enter in your presence. What a glorious thing to be able to know that the blood of Christ has covered our sin so that while we enter into this throne room, even as we speak to you now, Holy Father, there's this sense in which we only belong because of Jesus. 
We are here because he died for our sins. And our great king accepts us only on the basis of Christ. And so we boldly and confidently come into your presence even now. And we ask for the mercy that you might be kind to us in our weakness. Even as our Savior was kind to the disciples who had spirits that are willing, I think this reflects well our church family, we want to be prayers. We want to be people who are filled with the words of life, who know the scripture, and who find them deeply satisfying. But Lord, our bodies, our minds are distracted, and they are weak. So Lord, please be merciful to us and help us. Give us the grace of obedience that we might be people who are praying and speaking and communing with our God. Lord, I particularly pray for the leaders of this church. Again, just the ones who are present here today as well as any you might bring to us in the future, that you would strengthen them to be men who are mighty in prayer. That both ours and closeness to the throne would be the mark of the spiritual leaders of this church. Lord, I pray for the dads that are here. Give them the discipline and the devotion to fill their homes with prayer. Lord, I ask that you would not only give us the grace of prayer, but that you would give us the grace of knowing your word, of paying careful attention to our doctrine that we might align our lives and our teaching to the scripture. That the words that flow from our mouth in counsel would be biblical words, saturated with the grace of truth, filled with mercy as we call sinners to repentance and to be restored to God's presence. Father, I pray that you would fill our church with men and women who are marked out as biblical, word-saturated, scripture-centered people. May you make us like Christ through the ministry of your word. Lord, help this pulpit to always be filled with men who open up God's word, speak God's truth, and do so for the glory of God. Strengthen our church so that its leaders read and minister and know the Bible. It is a necessary ministry of every shepherd to be skilled at rightly dividing and ministering the word of truth. So give us that grace, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.